Shipping can make or break a sale, so optimize how you ship your orders with ShipStation. They make it easy to automate and manage orders no matter how big your business grows. And they might even be able to help reduce shipping and warehouse costs. So optimize and keep up your momentum for growth with ShipStation. Sign up for your free 60-day trial now at ShipStation.com and use the code P-O-D. That's ShipStation.com with the code P-O-D. The views expressed in the following program are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect the views of Saga 960 AM or its management. At my signal, unleash hell. Greetings, welcome, happy Friday. You are listening to News Talk Saga 960. Mark Petrano with you for the next two solid gold hours of freedom-loving news talk. Awesomeness. So very glad you could join us to wrap up your work week right here on the Mark Petrano Show. Lots coming up. Jocelyn Bamford on the need to get our schools back to normal, to get kids' sports back to normal. Back to what it was before COVID. Enough of this commie great reset crap. George Ann Burke's going to be on the show on the optimism in the conservative party ranks. Well, the Tories are running neck and neck. And in some polls, actually ahead of the liberals by maybe three points. So they're definitely in it. We also have Tom Quiggin on the ISIS attacks in Afghanistan yesterday. And the shameful way Canada has abandoned its friends over there. Why is this prime minister, why is Trudeau being let off the hook by the bought-off media in the midst of an election campaign? Why? Oh, yeah, because the liberals bought them. Right. Conservative Party leader Aaron O'Toole releasing this statement, and uh, I have to tell you, it's not half bad. Let's listen. Canada shouldn't turn its back on our friends and allies. We certainly shouldn't turn our backs on the people who gave everything to help us and who believed in our promise of a better tomorrow. There is no easy path. There are no easy answers. And at this point, the sad truth is that after months of delay, we won't be able to help everyone. But I can tell you with absolute certainty, we could be doing more. We should be doing more. We need a plan to help as many of these people as possible. We should be extending our hand to offer assistance wherever we can. As a country, we were caught unprepared for the evacuation, but we can't be for the aftermath. How we react now, how we help the people who helped us at this dire moment, this is a question of who we are as a country and as a people. Here are three concrete things that we can do right now. Number one rededicate ourselves to work with our allies and Afghanistan's neighbors to help anyone able to flee the Taliban. Number two, work with our allies, including India, to establish humanitarian and refugee corridors. Number three, provide political and material support to Afghans resisting the Taliban occupation. And that's a key one as well, because it shows that we haven't given up on freedom. So, you know what? It's a good statement, and um, he showed restraint. I mean, he could have ripped Junior a new one. Uh, Lord knows Trudeau deserves it, but, uh, you know, he offered some valid 
alternatives, things that we could be doing. I know I have to tip my hat off to uh, O'Toole on that. I, I think it's a solid statement. I really do. All right. I'm just saying. Anyway, Joe Warmington is also going to be on the show today. Richard Serrett and I tackle the election campaign latest. So plenty to come over the next couple of hours. Also, this ramping up the hate and bullying as the Toronto Star becomes unhinged over the slowing take-up of the COVID shots. And our own Saga 960, while she's she's amazing, Carlene Nation, totally carpet bombs their ass. Right. <laughs> she writes this online. The media is ratcheting up hate towards Canadians who cannot be vaccinated or who choose not to be vaccinated. It starts with reckless coverage of this sort that we can that can turn into violence directed at a certain group. What's next? Will the Toronto Star advocate internment camps for the unvaccinated? Anyway, Carlene was responding to this comment in the Star. Uh, I have no sympathy left for the willfully unvaccinated. Let them die. That's right. That's from the Star. Online comments like these where the vaccinated say the unvaccinated deserve what they get are becoming increasingly common. But it's also proving true on the streets, that according to Star. (laughs) Look, hey, there's a lot of stuff online there, Toronto Star, including a lot of complaints and unhappiness from Canadians who don't want to spend $155,000 a week propping up your crappy paper. The Liberal government-backed rag ran this story. Most vaccinated Canadians are indifferent to the unvaccinated getting sick with the virus, with 83% saying they have no sympathy for the... Well, a lot of people who've been vaxxed are also getting sick. Anyway, they're saying for those who choose not to, COVID, uh, not to get the COVID-19 vaccine and fall ill, well, according to a poll by Angus Reid, well, this is the Toronto Star's take on that poll, most Canadians, well, they just might as well turn their backs on those people. So did they do a, a push poll to get this narrative that Canadians don't care or that we're all completely divided on, you know, whether you're vaxxed or unvaxxed? The star has been demanding vaccine passports and getting more and more desperate, I think, as juniors numbers fall. Yeah, I think there's a correlation there. I really do. They also say unvaccinated patients do not deserve ICU beds. At least that's the point in the story. Really? You can die in the hallway. That's right. Some people do anyway in our healthcare system. But, uh, oh my, whatever will I do without the star feeling sorry for me? First of all, I never asked for your empathy or your sympathy. It means nothing to me. (laughs) Your sympathy and a couple of bucks might get you a cup of coffee and a crappy one at that. Secondly, I have had to pay into this healthcare system all my working life. Mm. Government has taken tens of thousands of dollars in taxes from me over the years to fund this medical system of ours, which frankly isn't uh, even that good. And I still pay out of pocket for certain things anyway. So if, if being unvaxxed means I'm not going to get health care, really, if I need it, well, I want my money back. Tell you what, I want government to cut me a big fat check. Let's call it a quarter million dollars with interest. And I'll pay for my own private care and insurance. You don't have to worry about me at all. And, uh, and you don't take any more of my money for health care, by the way. Deal? You know, seriously. 
This is a cry for help from the star. They know that Junior is hated from one end of this country to the other, and the star has a huge financial stake in a liberal victory. Oh, they do, because, uh, well, because of that fund, right? What, $600 million to prop these guys up? Not just the star. There are others, certainly, getting money. But uh, the star is the most obnoxious and pathetic of the bunch. And uh, Junior's campaign is going badly, so this is going to cost them money if he, uh, if he goes on down to defeat. They know that this uh, so-called newspaper of theirs is irrelevant. They collect a ton of money to keep the lights on over there. Our money, my money and yours, are being wasted propping up that bitter, frustrated old rag. Yeah, anyway, so uh, the Toronto Star should tell its uh, sugar daddy that if the government is going to withdraw care for the unvaxxed, give us our money back with interest today. Got to take a break, my friends, commercial break. We'll be back with lots more on Saga 960 and the Mark Petroni Show after this. Stream us live at Saga960AM.ca. to the Mark Petroni radio program heard exclusively on News Talk Saga 960. And we are back with more on News Talk Saga 960. So very glad you could join us on this Friday edition of the Mark Petroni show. We have Jocelyn Bamford on the line. Jocelyn is president of the Coalition of Concerned Manufacturers and Businesses of Canada. Always great having Jocelyn on the line to chat with our listeners. Welcome, Jocelyn. Well, happy Friday to everyone, and boy, do I have a lot to unload on this week. What a crazy week. Uh, I don't know about the rest of you, but uh, doesn't it feel like the world is absolutely spinning out of control? Yeah, it sure does. And I mean, you've, you're right in the front lines in a way, maybe not the front lines, but you're dealing with employees who have loved ones in Afghanistan, trying desperately to get them out. And uh, of course, if you have a liberal MP, then that individual is probably uh, too busy doing other things like trying to get reelected in order to help people. Yeah, you know what? And it just makes me so angry because, you know, how dare Trudeau call this election? You know, it's, it was the fourth wave of the pandemic. I can't believe that they didn't have intelligence going into this, that this um, that the U.S. was going to be pulling out of Afghanistan, I'm sure, uh, as as partners in in the G7 and in, and in all of the things that we do with the United States, that uh, we wouldn't have had a head up heads up that this was going to happen. And, and now, you know, I have an employee that uh, went to Afghanistan a few weeks ago to marry his bride, came back before. You know, just as things were starting to get bad, but had no idea that it would turn so so bad so quickly, and is desperately trying to get his wife out of Afghanistan. I mean, and try and get uh, MP to uh, help in Scarborough is nearly impossible because they're all out electioning, and and that's what I was told uh, when I've been making some some calls to see how we can help them. So it just it just makes my blood boil. Uh, when all of this is going on and and the uh, liberal federal liberal party is putting their themselves before um, their citizens and it just seems like um, 
it, this has been a shift that's been going on for quite some time. It, it, it used to be that we elected officials to work for us because in a democracy, that's what it's all about. But increasingly, the paradigm has shifted and they believe we work for them and uh, and we need to change that paradigm, but quick. But, you know, I also have a friend whose husband is an interpreter and she's trying to get her sister out um, who's widowed with two children and, again, um, is is up against a, a huge brick wall um, that she's getting no assistance for. So um, just a very frustrating week for a lot of folks. Yeah, it absolutely is. And uh, for you to have to deal with, with desperate people, I know we've had people on the line. Uh, you know, we've had Joe Warmington. I mean, he has uh, colleagues, uh, you know, translators that he's worked with, interpreters rather, and, uh, you know, those people are fighting for their lives. And uh, you see the pictures of people standing in, uh, you know, sewage canals with their visas in hand and uh, trying desperately to get the attention of our staff over there and they can't do it. I cannot imagine uh, what, what these people are going through. It must be absolutely desperate. You know, they're fighting for their lives. And so for our governments to have left those people in the lurch, and it seems like this prime minister seems to be getting off scot-free I mean, enough of this crap already. I'm calling out the media because they really have to go after him. If this was a conservative uh, prime minister, I, I can tell you that he'd, get, he'd be getting shredded on a daily basis over this uh, crap show in, in Afghanistan, this total dumpster fire and their handling of it. But it is the way it is, and so all we can do is what we can do, right? Yeah, it, it, is, it is stunning to me with all of the things that have happened with this federal government, how anybody can be supportive of them. I just, it, 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 it just, we wonder what color the sky is in their world. It just is stunning to me. Uh, debacle after debacle after debacle. And uh, I don't even, I don't get it. I don't get how the so-called journalists, and I'll put that in air quotes, um, can can be supportive of them running cover, being their PR campaign. It's it's disgraceful, um, and uh, it's super concerning. So I I don't even know uh, where to start with that. But I I do know this: if if you uh, are sick of the completely biased media, stop watching the six o'clock and eleven o'clock news because the only way those folks will change. Um, is if their viewership tanks so much that they have to look at, at, you know, how do they drive people back? And the only way they drive people back is if they have go back to, to um, balanced reporting, which, which, which has been lacking in Canada for quite some time. Yeah, absolutely. Um, but the CBC's uh, ratings, they've tanked. And, <laughs> but we have had reports of the prime minister getting a bit of a rough ride. Uh, we've had people uh, heckling him on a almost daily basis, and uh, he had uh, protesters out in British Columbia yesterday. Let's hear what that sounded like. Your employees don't want to get the vax. This was in Surrey, British Columbia. He's got police all over the place. 
So they walk him back to his car, surrounded by a phalanx of, uh, of officers. Well, anyway. <laughs> so... Anyway, well, so you know, you you gotta, uh, you know, God bless those folks that take time out of their day to go make their voices be heard, because uh, <laughs> I think that has an influence on folks. Uh, those folks that maybe aren't aware of some of the things that are going on, especially um, in Afghanistan and and uh, you know the the problems with having an election during all of this turmoil, just at one that wasn't even required, you know, two years early only to shore up your power base. It's literally ridiculous. And um, they, they should send a message and there should be a consequence to, to doing this. Well, there's some indicators uh, in the polling, Jocelyn, that uh, he may have to pay the price, at least early on. I mean, there's plenty of time left for him to, try and get back uh, the support of Canadians. But once it starts to go downhill, once it heads south, it's, it's kind of hard to turn things around. He's got the TV debate, so everybody's kind of wondering if that's going to be the point, the game changer one way or another. But so far, when you see polling, for instance, from Ecos, with the Tories actually ahead now by uh, a few points, you know, pretty close, obviously. So we're not talking about pulling ahead by, you know, eight points or anything like that. But the, just the psychological effect of seeing the Conservatives at about 33 points and, and the Tories even dipping below three, according to some, at 29%, uh, it suggests that uh, the Canadians are pushing back not only against the idea of an election, but against other things, including this idea that somehow we, sh- we should be uh, taxing Canadians on their primary uh, residence if they sell their home. I mean, this is something that Canadians, I know, have definitely been against in the past, but they're trying to sneak it through. There are indicators that it's in the Liberal Party platform. I don't know. This uh, this is not a good idea for the Liberals. What do you think? Yeah, I think it's ridiculous. I think most uh, Canadians see their home as their uh, one true investment that can see them through retirement. And I think that, you know, taxing... Uh, your your principal residence, when which by the way you've paid with after tax dollars, so you've already paid taxes, double taxing people, and and I ask people how much of your labor do you want to work for the government and give to the government, and how much do you want to keep for yourself, and when when you see that increasingly you're spending equal if not more time working for the government than yourself, you know that that should uh, uh, raise some alarm bells with folks because, you know, I don't want to be, you know, they want us to be little hamsters on the wheel, you know, just making money for them. Uh, and uh, I don't want to be doing that. I want to work hard and have the majority of my efforts go to me and my family and not to the government so that they can turn around and help their friends out uh, by giving them lucrative contracts. That That's not a win win situation for for most folks you also wanted to talk about education your kids are still in in the school system uh you've got some issues with uh the covid uh curriculum or criteria the gthl uh, the hockey league uh my kids all play hockey in the um, gthl and they just announced that if you are uh 
of age to get a vaccine, that in order to play hockey, you're going to have to uh, have that vaccine. And, and I can't for the life of me figure out, um, as I've told you and your listeners before, Mark, I'm vaccinated, as is my family, but we did that knowing that the long-term effects haven't been studied, but deciding that, you know, the odds are better to get it than not get it. But we've made that choice, and I totally appreciate those people that, for them, it wasn't an option, and I totally recognize that there's lots of people with either autoimmune disorders or um, anaphylaxis or, or allergies that, that the vaccine shot's not um, appropriate for. But what I wonder is how these folks can mandate people getting a vaccine that has no long-term efficacy or studies done and, and think that somehow they escape liability for that. Like that, that for me just doesn't make any sense. So if you mandate uh, folks getting a vaccine you, I would assume, take on some of the liability of forcing them or potential liability. And I don't know anyone that wants to do that. It makes, it makes as a business owner, that makes no sense to me. Um, you know, we have had a very high uptick in Scarborough at our plant here uh, because, you know, we provided information and we said, you know, uh, we'll, we'll help you, we'll book appointments, uh, we'll provide information. But ultimately, it's up to you and your doctor to decide what the right thing is for you. And, and it wasn't without risk. We had um, three people that had reactions to, to the shot. One was, was quite severe. Um, but ultimately, it was up to them to make that decision for themselves. And I can't imagine mandating that and, and taking on that liability um, from not only a financial standpoint, but just from a moral standpoint. Like, do you want to have mandated people um, take the vaccine and and who knows what happens way down the 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 road you want to have to bear that on your conscience I, I certainly don't I uh, wanted people to educate themselves on the vaccines and and the potential uh, issues of the vaccine and then make a decision what's best for them at this time and, along with their medical professional and I don't see how mandates help anything especially when we know now that with the information coming out that you can transmit the virus whether you're vaccinated or not it just it, it it makes no sense to me but so many folks just have to get on the bandwagon of whatever the popular uh, woke physician is instead of taking a step back and really reflecting on the consequences of making those mandates yeah we're seeing uh, Christine van Gain for instance who's a constitutional lawyer, I believe that's her title, but she's, she tweeted, tweeted this out. It's very disturbing that the democratically elected leadership of the province, Ontario, has made their position on vaccine passports clear, but a group of unelected bureaucrats are attempting to overrule that decision. The case for vaccine passports is not made out. This is a power grab, that according to Christine Van Gain. I have to ask you while I got, got you on the line, uh, and uh, who was it? Leslin Lewis was uh, actually tweeting about this as well. Um, about this Chinese state-owned shipbuilder uh, tapped to a supply uh, ferry for Crown Corporation. So the Chinese shipyard basically tasked uh, with this, got this huge contract to build a passenger ferry for use by Crown Corporation. And uh, so uh, Dr. Lewis was saying, Justin Trudeau, a Chinese Communist Party pawn. We've got the two Michaels uh, in prison in China, the Uyghurs facing genocide, and yet... 
This is what uh, Dr. Lewis says, Leslin. She says, uh, and the Trudeau government awarding a $100 million contract to a, a communist uh, state-owned company. This is unacceptable. And the Tories have come out and said, well, you know what? We're going to kill this contract if we get in. What if you could have a career where the opportunities are as vast as our nation, where it's not about mission statements, but a shared mission? At U.S. Customs and Border Protection, we go beyond to protect more than borders, from ship to shore, air to ground, cities to local communities. CBP agents and officers are keeping people safe. Join U.S. Customs and Border Protection and go beyond for something far greater than yourself. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. Purchase new wiper blades from O'Reilly Auto Parts today and we'll install them for free. See better and drive safer with O'Reilly Auto Parts. Oh, 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 O'Reilly Auto Parts. And so they should. I mean, Canada has a great shipbuilding program, um, especially a, a shipbuilding program that uh, supports small to medium-sized businesses. And, and how do they do that? When they give large contracts to large uh, multinational corporations, those corporations need to provide equivalent amounts of offsets by um, contracting some of the work out to small to medium-sized industry. It, it works great to keep small to medium-sized uh, industry participating in some of these large contracts, um, and that was that was developed under um, Stephen Harper back when. And it, and it is a great program to make sure that our small and medium-sized business participate. But what we've seen time and time again from the federal government, the liberal government, is that they don't care. They don't care about manufacturing. They can't drive us out fast enough. Uh, with the LNG project, you know, what did they say? Oh, we just don't have enough people that can manufacture it. So we're sending it over to China and, and um, those parts will be fabricated modularly in China, put on um, shipping containers and sent over here to, to get built here. Um, we could have participated, uh, we as in the manufacturers of Canada, could have participated in that LNG project and pro- and manufactured parts and, and their narrative is oh we don't have enough enough people to to manufacture those parts fabricate those parts to which i say nonsense but even if that was true then they should mandate 50 percent of is fabricated here and it's just like this contract we have a great uh shipbuilding capacity for fabrication here in in canada and in ontario and we ought to be using that to to build uh, parts for for new ships and this contracting out of to large corporations, a lot of which uh, is done offshore, is is just a waste of our infrastructure dollars that that Canadian taxpayers are paying for. Um, we should be able to participate. And when you add on that we have Buy America in the United States, so a lot of Canadian fabricators that. Um, build parts in the transportation or infrastructure areas are shut out of uh, U.S. Um, that and and to have our our Canadian government absolutely looking to offshore all of these manufacturing jobs, which by the way are the lifeblood of the middle class in Ontario and Canada, is just unconscionable. So. If if the Canadian government's narrative is we didn't know about it, well then cancel the contract if that's if that's the case. Um, mandate that it has to be fabricated in Canada if that's the case. There's lots of ways to get around this, um, and the fact that they seem completely unwilling to even entertain a conversation on it just shows you that their main objective is to drive manufacturing in the middle class out of Canada. And they're doing it. 
and uh, and they're doing it and, almost completely um, un, undeterred. Well, we're going to try to deter them. <laughs> so, <laughs> yes, and yeah. you know what? We we need to speak yeah, out. We absolutely. need yeah. we need to do something because so, Lord knows the the bought off media is not interested either. Right. So yeah. I know. Talk to your. Uh, the election's coming up. Talk to your friends. Talk to your family. Share some of this stuff on your social media platform. Let's make sure ca- Canadians understand the issues at hand and how this election really is about. Do you want to preserve the middle class economy, or do you just want to have large corporations and folks that are doing middle uh, minimum wage service jobs? Uh, yeah, I want to yeah. maintain the middle class. I want to maintain manufacturing. So let's have that be a a door discussion when your politicians come to talk to you about uh, garnering your vote. Thank you, Jocelyn. Appreciate it as always. Always good to get this all off my chest on a Friday, <laughs> and I hope everyone enjoys the weekend. Absolutely, and we will. Jocelyn Bamford is president of the Coalition of Concerned Manufacturers and Businesses of Canada. We're going to take a brief time out commercial break. Back with more on Newstock Saga 960 and the Mark Petrani Show after this. No radio? No problem. Stream us live on Saga960am.ca. You were listening to the Mark Petroni Radio Program. Heard exclusively on News Talk Saga960. And we're back with more on News Talk Saga960. So very glad you could join us on this Friday edition of the Mark Petroni Show. We have George Ann Burke on the line. George Ann is Senior Vice President of Pathway Group, a communications expert, a, a political strategist. She's also a consultant who supports the Conservative Party of Canada. So as you look at the uh, polling, um, I, what's what's going through your mind is you, see, is you see polling companies like Ecos, for instance, which um, has been notoriously down on the Tories, I mean, at least according to some, now has the Conservative Party ahead. You look at other polling, it also has the Tories around 33% and the Liberals down to 30, 31%. So they've flipped side. They're still obviously running neck and neck. And neck. So, you know, within the uh, margin of error. But uh, are you taking much comfort in the way things are going so far? Um, actually, it's it's really interesting what's going on. Um, so it's no secret that I used to work for the Conservative Party many years ago. And in, during those years, there were four years that I worked for them from 2004 to 2008, I was privileged actually, and I consider it a privilege to have worked for Doug Finley, who was the director of operations at the time. May he rest in peace. And one of the things that Doug repeated over and over and over to us was no poll should be taken at its face value. Um, It's a snapshot in time. It may or may not be accurate. It depends on who they called. It depends on the kind of questions they asked. Rather, you look at trends. So, that's why when you get an outlier poll, I completely ignore them because they're generally just an outlier. They might have asked different types of questions. They might have had a, uh, a not so carefully randomized group or or the, there may, it may have been an, an agenda behind it. I don't know. But I'm looking at the overall polling and the trend is with the conservatives. Um, and I think this is for a couple of reasons. One, um, they had a very good rollout the first week of campaign. It was, I would say, as close to flawless as I've seen in quite some time. Uh, no controversies, no 
uh, candidate explosions, no mistakes by the leader. The the messaging was very, very good, was very on point um, and and spoke to issues that actually concern Canadians. The second part of this is the complete incompetence of the liberal campaign. I actually am quite shocked. I've always given them credit for being fantastic campaigners, running a tight ship. um, And this was anything but this was as if like they didn't know that they had an election coming. You know what I'm saying? It was like watching them and it's like, well, wait a minute. You guys picked the date, the time, the place, everything about this. How come you weren't ready? Because that's what it looks like. All right, so wait. it's so it, it could be that they weren't ready or it could be that they didn't think they had to get ready. And, and you know, hubris being one of their hot, finer qualities could be what's behind that. They just didn't think they needed to. So. You know, you look at it and and you say, I just can't believe it. Of course, they've had the problems which are horrifying and ugly with Afghanistan. Um, and now the Canadians are saying, well, we're done now. So if you're a Canadian and you're there or you were one of the unfortunate uh, Afghanistan um, uh, nationals who sacrificed themselves and 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 put themselves in harm's way to help the Canadians and the other allied countries in the war against um, uh, the Taliban, then you're you're saying, well, hold on a second. Like, that's it. Goodbye. Good luck, um, which is not being very well received by Canadians. Um, I, I'm, I watch all social media, not just Twitter. And you get a pretty good picture if you kind of go across all social media because it covers all different age groups. And it people are shouting about this now. I think the crowning achievement um, in this election was the incredibly stupid and insensitive, insensitive remark yesterday by Maryam Monsef, the um, minister of whatever. Gender, uh, who, women. Yeah, uh, as I said, whatever. <laughs> um, she Calling Taliban her brothers. I'm fairly sure that Afghan refugees one of whom uh, spoke out pretty clearly yesterday, Sarah Sultani, uh, don't look at them as their brothers. They look at them as the people who tormented and tortured and murdered and and uh, oppressed the people prior to that war beginning. So this is, um, I, I don't know how many more mistakes they can make. Uh, I can pray for some more. As I've said before, a week is a lifetime in politics. Anything can happen. But at this moment, it looks to me like the conservatives are doing a pretty good job. Um, and I'm I can't say I'm unhappy with that at all. I'm quite happy with that. Um, and I think Canadians are at least giving um, the leader a second look uh, and, and seeing what he has to say. I, I will say that I believe that the debates will be incredibly important to him. I think he knows that, that he has to come across as confident, calm, measured, intelligent and human. Um, and, because it's very hard to go up against a guy like Trudeau who has some kind of charisma. I don't particularly see it, but I know a lot of Canadians do, um, that that he constantly is able to overcome all of his deficits with with this, this charm offensive that he puts on. Um, so it'll be interesting to watch what happens in those debates in early September. Well, yeah, it would be interesting to see if he's exhausted the last of his nine lives. Because of course the <laughs> yes. uh, the housing issue, um, you know, the fact that they would pretty much follow uh, follow the leader, the Conservatives, which tabled their plan back in June and uh, was defeated in the House, and now they're saying, oh well, maybe we should look at uh, you know 
uh, well, that's for them, though. You see, yeah. that's that's only one step towards their ultimate goal, which is to tax the capital exactly. gains on homes. Exactly, and that is huge. I mean, that has yet to come out. And and by the way, if it if it had oh. been a conservative prime minister uh, in charge of this Afghanistan debacle, do you think he'd be getting shredded every day on the campaign trail? Without a doubt, he wouldn't be able to step off his plane. He wouldn't be able to. He or she wouldn't be able to stand in front of a microphone. They would be eviscerated by the media and and frankly rightfully so i'm just wondering why they're not eviscerating this guy well you know why because he's vulnerable on that file and they know it because if they went after him on that um i think they might uh, lose their 600 million dollars well this is it when you have uh, media that is uh, has a financial stake in the outcome i mean they should be recusing themselves you know it's it's uh, Mm. absolutely outrageous but, uh, yeah, this this poll as well, polling Canada, this is a Main Street research. CPC, yep. this is the highest I've seen them um, since the Harper years, mid-30s, uh, 35% yep. up another one. Yep. So uh, the Liberals are down one to 32%. Uh, the NDP is at 19, Block at 5, PPC at 5. So here's the yep. uh, People's Party tied with the Block. Uh, that's got to be a source of concern if you're a, if you're a conservative. Well, um we, you know, obviously we know that the PPC isn't really drawing a lot of support from the left parties. Um, they're, they're, I would say primarily, like I, I'm speaking very frankly, dis- disgruntled conservatives, um, some libertarians who never really supported any of the parties very much, but mostly disgruntled conservatives. I understand their unhappiness. Um, the difference between them and me is I share some of the concerns that they have, some, not all, um, but I would never start another party because I've seen what happens when you do that. Rather, what you have to do is continue to fight inside your party. And I don't mean privately so people don't hear. As you know, I'm out there saying things publicly when I'm unhappy. And I know that doesn't always endear me to the people on the inside. But on the other hand, um, I don't see any other way to make changes in your party if you don't stay and fight. Uh, to take your marbles and go home is not not the way um, I think you should do things. So we disagree on that. But it is definitely a concern. And in some writings, listen, I can tell you that I know of at least two writings that were lost in the last election because of the PPC. They didn't win. They got a few hundred votes. But those few hundred votes would have turned the, the writing for us. Um, and they were up in the GTA. So. You know, I I know the harm that they can do. But on the other hand, the liberals have a problem, too, because people are feeling so lethargic and and not engaged with them. Um, And they're unhappy with situation, even though they may not say it. There are lots of people in the party that are not so happy with the way things are going. The liberals, Um, they're looking at the NDP. They're looking, you know, at the Green Party, the more, you know, radical ones, I guess. Um, Because the Green Party has gone down a path that I completely do not understand. That being said, um, they're they're looking at these other parties as places to park their votes. The bloc um, continues to get whatever it gets in Quebec. I mean, you can't look at that. You have to look at that as a number within Quebec. I don't know that they do that. They talk about it as a national number. But if you look at it within Quebec, it would be more accurate because nobody votes for them outside of Quebec. So what's their percentage in Quebec? I don't know that. so, I mean, uh, you know, I, I would say that they're a threat to the liberals in Quebec. Um, so, yeah, the, and, and the NDP could be, too, although Quebecers are not so interested in voting for Jagmeet Singh because 
I think we all know why they don't like a guy with a turban, um, which is it's absolutely true. Like, this is true. Wow. Um, They're you know, for all of their talk about human rights and all of this other stuff, they actually are pretty narrow minded. Many of the people there. I don't mean everybody. uh... Don't get mad at me out there. I'm talking about (laughs) the facts of life are that there is a problem for a guy with a turban who's the head of a party in Quebec. Not really much of any other place, what, but there, yes. What do you base that on, exactly? Where, um, where do you get polling, that from? Polling over a long period of time. You know, it, it, I'm talking about, you know, um, the kind of uh, a, a perspective point of view polling, not not elections polling, but looking at issues and attitudes, attitude polling. That is definitely an issue. So you it's think definitely that a problem. That's, that's hurting them, so... Racism. I, I think it does hurt him in Quebec. Yeah. It doesn't make it easy for him to make inroads. A guy like Jack Layton, who yeah. was actually a Quebec, born in Quebec from Hudson, you know, they looked at him differently. He was, uh, you know, m- more kind of person that they could identify with. And they were mad enough at the liberals at that time to go vote for the NDP. If you recall, he ended up with 106 seats. A lot of them were in Quebec. Yeah. Big surprises. Like they had run children in those seats and they won. So, um, yeah, true. yeah, so, I mean, the, there isn't that the, uh, the Quebec, Quebec population will vote N- NDP. They will, but when they're comfortable with whoever's in charge and I don't think they particularly like this guy and, you know, certainly at least one of the theories and I've seen polling that kind of bears it out, uh, is they don't like the fact that he wears a turban and uh, not, and it's not that he's a Sikh, but that he's a, that he appears to be a religious guy. They're not wildly religious there and they don't like religious stuff. So. Okay. So it's, that's the issue then it's, so they, they probably wouldn't vote for say, uh, an evangelical Christian or. Well, that that's you know, for that, sure. That's, and uh, the, and Orthodox Jews outside of certain areas would, you know, if they were visibly Orthodox, they would have the same problem. I, I suspect a strong, hardcore Catholic, you know, who had held very um, uh, strong Catholic views would be rejected as well in Quebec. They tend to be very secular voters. Yeah. 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 Which is, uh, yeah, they're the first to turn on you anytime somebody goes in the direction of a, uh, say, social conservative and starts right, exactly. dealing with exactly, exactly. abortion. And as you know, that, yeah. religious people tend not tend to be social conservatives, but tend to hold more, um, and it's a small c, conservative views of life. They want to be left alone. They want to live their lives. They want to be respected. They, they don't want the government in their face all the time. Certainly don't want the government in their religious life. Uh, they want to be left alone to do things in their own way. Um, most Canadians kind of actually feel that way, but when you couch it in a religious context, that's when you get kind of, oh, no, 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 that's not what I mean, even though it's actually the same thing. Yeah. Look, with the time we've got left, uh, we usually uh, hit U.S. politics at some mm. point. Uh, it just goes from bad to worse for for Joe Biden. I think the media is trying to spin this uh, disaster in Afghanistan is something that was, you know, it, it was a tough decision on his part, but ultimately history will, uh, you know, agree with his approach, getting out, you know, you can't stay in there forever and trying to blame Trump and so forth. But I'm not sure Americans are buying it. What are you hearing south of the border? So it's very interesting. There's only some media that's doing that. What I'm actually seeing, and I, I follow American media fairly closely, um, and I, not just Fox. Okay. So stop it out there while saying, <laughs> Oh, she just listens to Fox. No, I read the New York times, the Washington post, the LA times, 
every day. Um, and I go to news sites that are are liberal news sites, are, are, you know, not conservative news sites, just to see what they're talking about. There's a lot of unhappiness with the way that he's done this. And part of it is because um, so you have on the on the left side, you have this concern about um, refugees. They want people to be able to come here. So that's the left side. And the conservative side is, you know, this military debacle that we have today. I don't know um, if anybody's talked about it. There was a bombing in two places in Kabul. Most people are only hearing about the one at the airport. There was actually one at the Baron Hotel yeah. in downtown Kabul. And in fact, just for your information, y'all out there, that's where the Canadian government sent people who were Canadian citizens and Afghans who worked with the Canadian army to wait to be picked up and taken out of the country. So I, we don't know um, exactly what's happened, but I've read a report where they're saying that 13 people have been killed in these bombings. Um, and the Americans basically just closed ranks pretty close and they're just like, yeah, we're done. We're out of here. And I think the 31st uh, will be the outside date that they're gone. They'll be gone as fast as they can get their butts out the door, which is a complete travesty. Thank you, right. George Ann. I really appreciate this as always. George Ann Burke. Great to talk with you. Great to talk with you as well, as always. George Ann Burke, Senior Vice President of Pathway Group, coming to us from Ottawa, the nation's capital. And uh, we're going to take a brief timeout, commercial break, back with more on News Talk Saga 960 and the Mark Patrona Show after this. Stream us live at saga960am.ca. You were listening to the Mark Petroni Radio Program, heard exclusively on News Talk Saga 960. And we are back with more on News Talk Saga 960. So very glad you could join us on this Friday edition of the Mark Petroni Show. We have Joe Warmington, who's been doing unbelievable work on this Afghan file. Uh, it's emotional. It's uh, inc- incredibly exhausting. And Joe, of course, has been dealing with uh, translators over there who run the risk, uh, a very serious risk of being hunted down and killed by the Taliban. We have now explosions at the airport, uh, multiple explosions in that city, uh, suicide bombers, um, just absolute chaos. And uh, that's why it gives me so much pleasure uh, to, to have Joe on the show. Welcome once again, Joe. Yeah, it's a, you know it's a very dark time in the world's history and in Canadian history because we warned about all these things right on your show, and that's why we felt it was so important for two things: to suspend the election campaign until we're no longer in harm's way and at war, and secondly, to get as many people that are on our Canadian list that we promised to bring back, get them over that wall and on airplanes. And, and you know and get here instead all the red tape blocked it it created a bottleneck there at the airport and you know uh we talked about yesterday uh you know uh my guy uh ahmed he didn't get out and uh i you know he wasn't killed in the blast but it was right near where he was and uh it could have very easily been and of course it's other people like him that want to come to canada and other places it's it's really really awful absolutely I mean, what? I guess they're looking to you for what assistance? I mean, they must be desperate. So the the correspondence that you're getting back and forth from these individuals, 
must uh, just fill you with so much uh, terror and frustration. Well, you know, I was on the phone with, with Ahmed overnight. He's at the Walmart. We got him there. We had a lot of help to get him there. And we even got the Canadian troops to come out with the American troops. And he's shouting at them. And I can hear this. I'm on the phone. And I'm saying, put me on with them. And they would not talk to him. They talked to him like he's some sort of a bug. And he had a letter from the Minister of Immigration saying that he didn't need a, a visa. His visa is in the mix. You know what I mean? He He's applied for it. He's got his G number. He has a passport. His wife and his kids don't have a passport. Things like that. It, it's not like this guy doesn't deserve to come here. Lots of people got through. We got him to the wall. We got him to a Canadian, and it wasn't good enough. I'll tell you, it breaks my heart. I cannot believe it. I don't blame the troops on the wall. I understand that they were given orders, but it's not okay with me that Justin Trudeau and you know the, the ministers responsible for the military just let that happen. And, and this is not just with me, many other people. Sure, they got lots out, but not enough. And you know, it would have been way more had they listened to people that know what they're talking about. Yeah, and I'm hearing stories that people that should be uh, devoting some of their time to helping people get out are on the campaign trail, and frankly, uh, just I did not take in calls or don't want to be bothered with this stuff. I mean, we're talking about well, life and death here. You just look at the Twitter. Right after the blast, Justin Trudeau, right after the blast, is tweeting about campaign stuff, $500 for seniors and these kinds of things. You know, Aaron O'Toole is tweeting a, a letter about the Afghanistan situation. He's finally getting in the game. Even though he's been in the game, he hasn't been campaigning that way. Because I think the old adage of don't get in the way of your enemy if they're shooting themselves was what he was, you know, the, what he was doing was not why would you get in the middle of it? But now he realizes that he's got to get in the middle of it, show some leadership. We need leadership. It's not rocket science. It's just called leadership. And, you know, the other thing too is that with this whole business of Canadians on the ground, in a firefight, in explosions, we've got our allies that are uh, blown up in, in terms of American troops. As far as we know, there's no Canadians, but the U.S. are our allies. There's also people in those lineups that we're trying to come to Canada that are on our list, things like that. You don't go and campaign in a scenario like that. And there's no government right now. So what it means is the three major leaders, and you know who they are, Prime Minister Trudeau, Liberal leader, and obviously opposition leader Aaron O'Toole, conservative leader, and uh, Jagmeet Singh, who's the NDP leader. They should all together go into a war room and figure out what to do here and work with our allies, not just to run and, and get out of there, but to fight back. And I'll tell you something else, as I reported, retired General Dean Milner, who was the very last commander of the Canadian Armed Forces in Kandahar, yeah. when we left in 2014, he walked out with the Canadian flag and gave it to the embassy there. He reports that Taliban and uh, also ISIS uh, you know, players have got control of Black Hawk helicopters and also land war vehicles, all kinds of hundreds of them. So they've got our, our, you know, our weapons, they've got our material, they've got our training, and they're attacking us. And what are the leaders doing and what is uh, Prime Minister Trudeau doing? He's campaigning like somehow everything is normal and it isn't normal. Yeah, well, I've seen your tweets here. Uh, Major General Dean Milner, retired, who was the final Canadian commander in Afghanistan, who was uh, the leading interpreter, uh, leading interpreter rescue mission, uh, says that the Taliban, tells the Toronto Sun that uh, the Taliban and ISIS forces are now flying Black Hawk helicopters. First I thought was, well, 
this is a recipe for a terrorist attack on possibly you know the mainland of the United States. I mean, I don't know how they would get it over there that far, but I mean, it seems to me that if they're getting all this hardware, then they could potentially use it to uh, to kill Americans at home. Um, and then you, this is a particularly strong tweet. You are a disgrace, Justin Trudeau. We and our allies are under attack. Do your job. And that was in response to a, a, a Trudeau message saying, uh, well, basically campaigning. Um, you know, it's like this guy. But you know what? The media is not calling him on it as much. I mean, you're, you're doing it. Others, a handful of others are doing it. But I don't think he's getting shredded on the campaign trail on this issue. Do you? You know, I'm so busy trying to save lives, I don't know. I mean, you know, that's what we've been doing. Myself and, and Dean Milner and Chris Eklund and Wendy Long, and it goes on and on and on, a big long list. Corey Shelson. There's many people that are doing everything they can to save lives. And what is this guy doing? He's out campaigning. He, When he came out of Rideau Hall there 12 days ago, the very first thing he did was not talk about the election. He talked about Afghanistan. So the, that's your first clue. He should not have gone forward with this. He should have told the governor general, we're going to do an election another time until our troops are out of harm's way and our people are over here safely. Instead, he campaigned. So no, I don't know to answer your question. The media party is what it is. I think they have been holding him to account. There's some really good reporters out there. Bob Fife and Mercedes Stevenson stand out to me. There's other good ones too. Marika Walsh and different ones. So I, I think they are going to hold him to account. Um, I, I'm not, you know, I try to be, as you know, I try to be diplomatic. I'm way more diplomatic than you are, but I have to call it. That was disgraceful to be campaigning while we've got our allies and our innocent people that we're trying to bring here bombed families bombed. It's not the time to campaign. It's the time to, you know, let's, let's get going. Let's do something. And we're at war. It's a war. And so, you know, I'm looking for some serious leadership. I don't see it there. And then adding to all of this is a Trudeau uh, cabinet minister uh, calling the Taliban our brothers. And uh, Well, that's the other thing. I mean, you know, so it just adds to the sense that these people are trying on one hand uh, to help our people, I guess, to the degree that they can. But on the other hand, trying to suck up to the Taliban. We don't want to irritate them too much and call them our brothers. You know what I mean? You can't appease these people. They're terrorists. You know, they'll, they'll cut your well, head off. I mean. Yeah, and, and she doesn't speak for for anybody when she says that. She speaks for herself, perhaps, but she's sitting in, the, in this, you know, as a minister of the government. It's not the government's position. It's her her interpretation of it. So she was way off on that. Prime Minister himself called them after Mark Garneau had said something not quite as crazy as that, but he said that, you know, it's early days and these kinds of things, and we kind of knew why he did that. Prime Minister on the election trail clarified it and said that they're a terrorist organization. So, you know, even even the Prime Minister knows that. It was really, really something else. And what it does is it boys up the Taliban and the ISIS groups and stuff because they get that propaganda and they put it out to their own people. To say, look at this, you know, uh, we're strong, they're weak, they're afraid of us, and also they're trying to work with us, all of that. And so look what you get here. I mean, this is really bad. Now, we predicted this. I'm really, you know, I feel sick at heart because because of the bottleneck there, because of all that stupid bureaucracy 
Now, we all know there has to be security there, but there's so many cases of people that it's clear that there were families, etc. You know, the other thing, too, is that I heard three or four days ago that there were bad people inside the airport complex because my guy, Ahmed, he got in there that one time and he got thrown out by people like that. So, you know, we knew right away. And uh, the military name, I think that's why they got out of there. They started to sort of pack up early because I think they'd lost control of the inside market. And I think that, you know, the result of that is on display right now. All right, my friend. Well, it's, uh, you're right. I mean, you said it off the top of the interview that um, these are dark times indeed. But it's yes. nice to have people like yourself, journalists who actually give a rat's ass about what's going on, actually care. I want it to go well. Like I, I, like, I don't dislike anybody. I don't mean to be critical of the prime minister and all that, but we have to say something at some point. I mean, nothing's working. I mean, everything they do is wrong. And, you know, this business of me having my interpreter be at the gate to a Canadian soldier and several of them, and they won't look at his, you know, they won't help him and his, his children are sitting there suffering from dehydration and everything else, and they just turn away. I mean, like, I'm sorry, but I'm embarrassed. I had to apologize to the guy in an email because it, it was humiliating. I, I mean, I, everything I did was to move him to that spot so that they would rescue him. I thought they were supposed to be heroes over here. And what is, what is that? They turn around now, you know, he could be beheaded at any time. Look at, they're doing that. They're killing people all over the place. I mean, I don't know how much longer he's going to live. And he's a guy that is, you know, a high-value target. He's been threatened already before. So, you know what, I'm, of course I'm emotional about it. You know, I'm glad that I got a lot of people here, and I have not been critical of the ministers. You know, the Mendicino and, and Sajin are working very, very hard. I know they are because I'm in touch with themselves and their staff overnight and three in the morning and all that stuff. They are, they, they care and they're trying. And I don't blame the liberal government for everything because that wouldn't be fair either. There's a lot of blame to go around, including with Americans and this administration and the one before it and the one before that and the one before that. But the buck has to stop somewhere. And, you know, when we're saying all along, stop, cut it with the red tape, stop that, you know, get these things moving. This is before the Taliban walked in. The other thing that really gets me, and then I guess it'll, we'll call it a day on this, is that when the Taliban took over the second province, that's when guys like you and I were saying, wow, we better get serious about this. And they didn't. They just figured, you know what, we'll just take our time, lollygag around. And they figured it'd be six months until the Taliban got to Kabul and that the people would fight for Kabul. Well, it didn't happen. You saw the rest. And this is why this is a really, really ugly time. I don't think history is going to be very kind about it. No. I mean, here we're in the midst of an election campaign. I mean, I think people would look at Trudeau favorably if he took time off away from the campaign trail and uh, focused on this. I, I think Canadians would understand. I mean, I don't want to give him any advice at all. But It's too I, late now, though. It's too late now. You know, because he didn't do that, we ended up with this result. And, you know, again, I'm not blaming him for it because this is a really bad enemy. The enemy is the Taliban and ISIS and not our own leaders. But, you know, they really do everything through a political lens. And it made no sense to have the election when they did. Once it was clear that it wasn't working, he should have suspended it then. I asked him to do that. Others did too. And he didn't do it. And as a result, he has to wear this. This is his fault in terms of the Canadian part of it. And... You know, people have to judge him when they vote. Yeah. There's no way I'm voting for him, I'll tell you that. 
Well, Paul suggests that he is starting to pay a price. His numbers are down. I don't, I don't know if you've seen some of the recent polling, but uh, they're running. I don't pay attention to them. I don't care about polls. All yeah. I care about is what's right and wrong. And what's right and wrong, it doesn't matter if you can get elected and sell your stupid agenda. The bottom line is, what is our job? Is to protect our people and protect our allies. That's it. And we didn't do that. We failed. And we've got to wear it now. And you're absolutely right. History is not going to look kindly on us. And we're going to have to stare at these people in the face when they question, their families question, why we didn't do more to help them. And uh, what are the implications going forward? Who's going to trust us in the days ahead when they look at what happened there and think, well, obviously you guys can't be trusted because look what you did in Afghanistan. You failed those people, so therefore the trust is gone. Anyway, Joe, thank you for coming on the show. I, I appreciate it very much. I know our listeners do as well. Joe Warmington, journalist with the Toronto Sun. You can catch his work in that paper. And um, we're going to take a brief time out. Commercial break. Back with more on News Talk Saga 960 and the Mark Petrano Show after this. No radio? No problem. Stream us live on Saga960AM.ca. You were listening to the Mark Petroni Radio Program. Heard exclusively on News Talk Saga 960. All right, we're back with more on News Talk Saga 960. So very glad you could join us. On this Friday edition of the Mark Petrona Show, we have Tom Quiggett on the line. Tom, of course, an intelligence expert, a man who has testified before committees, before trials, and uh, he is looking on uh, with amazement, as many of us are, as tragically a dozen or so U.S. soldiers were just killed in Afghanistan in a series of blasts. The third one appears to have been the deadliest, Tom. What do you know about what's going on in that troubled country? Well, good afternoon, Mark, and thanks for inviting me to You're Saga welcome. 960. Uh, yes, indeed, a, a tragic day and a difficult day, but not unpredicted. Uh, as noted, it would appear around a dozen or so U.S. Marines and one Navy Corpsman have been killed uh, in what appears to have been a suicide blast. Uh, there appear to have been two suicide attacks, actually, one close to the airport, one close to a hotel. Uh, and then later this afternoon, apparently there was a third blast again, although it's not clear what's happening there. Um, this was warned about. It was known about French intelligence had warned about this for a while. The British intelligence had warned about it for a while. This is most likely not the Taliban that's done this. This is ISIS Khorasan or ISIS-K, as it's sometimes referred to in the popular press. Um, it's worth noting that the Taliban itself originated in Pakistan. It's also worth noting that this branch of ISIS, ISIS Khorasan, also originated in Pakistan before moving up into Afghanistan. ISIS-K has been around for about two, since about 2015, perhaps. Uh, they've been responsible for about 100 different terrorist attacks uh, since then, the most deadly of which was when they blew up a, a hospital in Kabul about a year ago and killed 24, 25 people, something like that. Uh, it's worth noting that they're an Islamist group, which is to say they have the exact same ideology as the Taliban. Uh, they are Islamist. 
They believe in political Islam. They believe that Islam is not a religion by itself. In fact, it is a total political system which should run the government, the finance, the economy, the medical system, the education system, the arts, everything. In other words, Islam is the solution, as they say. Islam should control all aspects of your life. So the question arises, people are confused, like, why is ISIS-K doing something which runs against the Taliban, and why are they attacking each other? And the answer is ISIS-K actually looks at the Taliban and says they're weak-willed, uh, they lack the ability to use violence properly, and they need to take a harder stand against America, a harder stand against uh, what they would loosely describe as infidels and apostates, etc. So as hard as it is to believe, ISIS-K takes a harder political line and a harder line on violence than does the Taliban, and ISIS-K looks down on the Taliban because they look at them as weak. Uh, so what you're seeing is ISIS is expressing their will and saying, the Taliban has Americans in their sights, there's one answer to that, and you open fire. You start killing every possible moment you can. So it's worth noting that there's like Islamist groups around the world. We have Muslim Brotherhood front groups here in Canada. We have Islam, Islam, sorry, Islam, or sorry, Jama-e-Islamiyah front groups here in Canada. Uh, but those front groups are aware of the fact if they use violence here in Canada now, it'll bring down the weight of authorities on them. It makes them look bad. But in other countries, uh, such as Afghanistan, Jordan, Israel, whatever, they genuinely believe that violence is the answer. Violence is the solution. Violence needs to be in their methodology every day in order to demonstrate how serious they are. So we're, what we're seeing in, in Afghanistan, actually, is a playing out of the Islamist ideology when there are no restrictions on it. So if people wonder, why do we worry about the Islamists? Why do we talk about Muslim Brotherhood front groups in Canada? Why do we worry about Jama-e-Islamiyah front groups in Canada? The reason is, once they get a position of power, once they get a position of influence, they will use their supremacist ideology to crush what's ever in their way. Um, for Canadians of a certain age, like perhaps you and I, we actually studied Russian history, Soviet history, and there's an analogy to be had here that when the Russian communists took over the system in 1917, not only were the Bolsheviks fighting against the government of the day, the aristocrats, they were also fighting the Mensheviks, who were their fellow communists. So we see the same thing going on in Afghanistan. You have two Islamist groups, both of which are incredibly violent, but each one has a different interpretation of how that violence should be used, so they turn on each other. Wow. So this is, okay. this is the kind of thing we're going to see more of in the future, Mark. And by the way, the death toll now, uh, 72 dead. By, I expect that that number will rise. It usually does in two separate explosions, actually three now, in Kabul's uh, airport, two su suicide bombers. This is the story of the Globe and Mail, Tom. And gunmen attacked crowds of Afghans flocking to Kabul's airport, uh, transforming the scene of desperation into one of horror in the waning days of an airlift for those fleeing the Taliban takeover, at least 60, Af 60 Afghans and 12 U.S. troops were killed. Af that according to Afghan and uh, U.S. officials. So the bloodbath there is stunning and it seems to be getting worse by the hour. But if I hear you correctly, what's playing out here is almost the ISIS wing uh, exerting its influence over the Taliban. So the Taliban may not even entirely be on side with this violence because we've heard that there have been some discussions. We know even back uh, with uh, Mike Pompeo during the Trump years, 
that there were discussions with the Taliban on various levels. And so those talks probably have been extending into the Biden administration. And ISIS seems to be coming along and saying, well, no, you guys are a bunch of wimps. We're going to show you how it's done. And they're ramping up the uh, the violence. I'm, I'm not putting words in your mouth, but as, as I hear this being played out, the Taliban may not entirely be in control here. Is that fair? That's not an unfair statement. I mean, it has to be made clear that the Taliban is an Islamist group. It's a supremacist group. And ultimately, its success depends upon its ability to use incredible amounts of violence very quickly, which is how they conquer territory and how they force people into submission. But it also has to be understood that the Taliban has a somewhat larger, long-term strategic view of what they want to do in Afghanistan and what they want to do in the surrounding region, which is to say Pakistan, uh, Iran, uh, the Kashmir area of India, and also they're looking at moving into the Punjabi area of India. So they have a longer-term strategic view. They'll use violence. They will suppress uh, women. They will run the cruelest regime going. But it's a more intelligent use of violence, whereas ISIS has a more sort of, I almost hate to use the term blitzkrieg, but they have sort of a lightning war view of violence. So if you remember when ISIS took over large parts of the territory in Iraq and in Syria in 2014, they did it with lightning speed and they did it with phenomenal violence. Uh, ISIS, for instance, if they go into an area, they conquer an area, They'll kill everyone in the village, men, women, children. They don't care, just murder everybody. And then that message gets out very quickly to the next village and the village after that and the village after that. If, the, if ISIS is coming to your neighborhood, they will just kill everyone. And it's a very effective way of conquering territory, and it's a very effective way of frightening people into submission. So again, the difference between the two is the Taliban are a little more regional orientated. They want to control Afghanistan as a country. They want to build a national-level infrastructure. They want influence in Pakistan. Iran, Tajikistan, Uzbekistan, uh, places like that. And they have a sort of long-term vision of where they want to go, whereas ISIS is more sort of intense, more focused, and they just want to violently extend the message everywhere as fast as they can. ISIS also believes in what we used to call propaganda of the deed, which is an old terrorism term from the 1870s, 1880s, that if you want to create a world following or if you want to create a following uh, of individuals who are going to take up your cause, the best way to do that is to demonstrate your ability to deliver violence. Propaganda of the deed, as, as I say it was called. So ISIS has a, a tendency to do the most extraordinary acts of violence. If you remember when they first took over in Syria and Iraq, they put that Jordanian pilot in a cage, filled it full of gasoline, and set the guy on fire while filming it. They marched a bunch of Coptic Christians onto a beach and cut their heads off, you know, in, in real-time video. Uh, that was not only to demonstrate what they're about, but it's also incredibly effective propaganda. It attracts people to the cause, and people of a certain ideology, people who follow the sort of political Islam, will be inspired by that, and they'll say, hey, look, those guys are actually out there really making a difference, and that's the team I want to join. Right, so they end up radicalizing people uh, in North America, in Canada, the United States, and elsewhere. And then, of course, on top of all this, if all that wasn't enough, Tom, and I'm going to quote a tweet from my friend uh, Joe Warmington, Major General Dean Milner, retired, who was the final Canadian commander, as you know, in Afghanistan, and who has been leading uh, the interpreter rescue mission, uh, tells the Toronto Sun that Taliban and ISIS forces are now flying Black Hawk helicopters 
And so they've got all sorts of hardware now as well, Tom, that the Americans have left behind billions of dollars in hardware, uh, I mean, way beyond guns. So now these people now are armed with, you know, sophisticated technology here, drones, and also waiting in the wings, of course, are the Chinese and the Russians who are also getting access to this. And in the midst of all this chaos, you've got people trying desperately to get out. You've got ISIS blowing themselves up with suicide bombers. I mean, this situation is hell on earth. I can't imagine uh, the, the worst place on the planet has got to be Afghanistan right now by a country mile. Yeah, I mean, when I was in places like Bosnia and Croatia, we saw the end results of, uh, of what a war looked like. Uh, your first time ever in a refugee camp is... Uh... It, it's a it's a life changing experience to go into a refugee camp and see people who who are just utterly defeated, utterly destroyed. They have no idea where they are. They have no idea what's happening because of the incredible violence that's been unleashed on them. So it is it is a scene, unfortunately, that many of us who served in places like uh, Bosnia and Croatia or in Iraq or those guys who've been in the Sinai or uh, all kinds of places. This unfortunately is something that's terribly familiar to us. Just to see this kind of uh, panic. I mean, the people get, when they start to panic, they do the most incredibly stupid things, uh, not because they're stupid people, but because they're desperate. So those guys climbing on the side of the airplane as it's taking off, you just look at it and go, it's suicidally stupid. But having seen that kind of panic, having seen what a war looks like up close, you start to understand why people think like that. Missing from the discussions here, uh, there's another report floating around that the Taliban may have actually captured something they can really use, uh, something they can sell. And these are uh, they're a single-engine turboprop aircraft. It's called uh, Pilatus. Uh, it's quite often shows up in North America as a turboprop executive aircraft, seats maybe 12 or 14 people. But the U.S. Army version of it uh, is a intelligence-gathering asset. It's a uh, light single-engine turboprop aircraft. It carries a whole bunch of cameras and monitoring gear, and it's used for battlefield intelligence. So it can monitor communications, it can do camera work, it can do intercepts, it can do all kinds of crazy stuff like that. Phenomenally expensive aircraft. They're supposed to be around $200 million a piece, even though the aircraft itself is only worth several million dollars. But what makes it expensive is all the spy gear. And it appears that the Taliban has captured a few of these things. So they will, L, I would imagine they'll sell a couple of them uh, overseas because they're a phenomenal intelligence asset uh, and they'll be not just useful for what they can do but useful for how you can take it apart and find out what makes it work so as time goes by what we're going to discover I think is some of the high-tech stuff like the drones the intelligence collection asset the biometric gear that the US Army was using the loss of that is going to be hugely significant in the sense that technology will be bled off to other countries um, the Black Hawk helicopters, I'm not sure they're that much of an asset in the sense that flying those things is hard, maintaining them is harder, spare parts and all that stuff are hard to get for the U.S. Army, so it's going to be very hard for the Taliban. But more importantly will be things like the Humvees, which are lower tech, they're easier to maintain, and the MRAP vehicles, which are an armored vehicle, which is good against uh, mined roads and things like that. Those are going to be a huge asset to the Taliban because they're relatively low tech and they can actually operate those. Uh, for the rest of the world, um, what, what, what I think is worth sort of examining or what's worth uh, doing a critical analysis of is what will the knock-on effect be on this for ISIS in Iraq, ISIS in Syria? What will the knock-on effects be for the Islamist front groups here in Canada that are watching this and cheering it on? What sort of follow-ups are going to be when we get people like Marian Monsef, our beloved minister of women's uh, 
Minister of Women and Equity or Women and Equality, whatever she's called these days, um, when she sits out there and calls, you know, the Taliban our brothers, you know, there should be a questioning in the Canadian political system of who in Canada actually supports these guys? Why do we keep giving them millions of dollars to their various charities? And given that there's an election on right now, now would be the perfect time here in Canada to have a discussion about who are the front groups? Why are they in Canada? Why do we support this kind of Islamist activity in Canada? And is now a good time to have a discussion and start doing something about it? I don't think you'll see this happen because the Liberal Party is completely in bed with these characters. The, Con the Conservative Party of Canada has their own problems with these people. And the NDP, of course, has, uh, shall we say, a number of people in the party who have extremist views that don't want these discussions. So even though now is an election, now would be the good time to talk about this stuff. I don't think we're going to see it in Canada, and that's truly unfortunate. It is unfortunate because, of course, as you mentioned, we're in the midst of a, uh, an election campaign, and uh, the media doesn't seem overly keen about talking to Justin Trudeau about it. I mean, I, if it was a conservative a prime minister here, I think they would be shredding that individual on a day-to-day -day basis on this debacle in Afghanistan. It's not happening. And we can only surmise that this is largely due to the kind of ongoing bias that we see in the media these days. But uh, I have to ask you about what the Biden administration was thinking going into this. I mean, we look at this situation, Tom, and you, sh you have to shake your head. It's like these people wanted to, there to be chaos. It's almost like they wanted there to be people dying. It's like they wanted to be terror and disaster and all this stuff. I don't think, how, you, how could you have planned this any worse than it was? What the hell was this president thinking? <laughs> Okay, a hundred different questions there. Uh, let me fall, let me fall let me fall back Pick to one. My, yeah. Let me fall back to my immediate response in these things. Never assume malice when stupidity will explain the situation. I think you've got a situation Biden wants out of Afghanistan, and he has uh, ever since he was vice president with uh, President Obama. Well, Biden was highly critical of the role in Vietnam. It's very clear he wants out. Unfortunately, I think what you see through the American political system over the last eight to 10 years, but just violently so in the last six months, has been uh, the U.S. military is actually focused on white rage within the ranks. They're worried about white supremacy in the military. Uh, the U.S. military and uh, its uh, reserve system was able to find 25,000 troops to send to Washington, D.C., defend the Capitol against a mythical insurrection, which the FBI said never actually existed, but they couldn't find 20,000 troops to send to Afghanistan to control the withdrawal. I think if you want to look at the degree to which normal planning failed utterly, the, the one single example I think that serves the best is Bagram Airfield. That was the major airfield for the U.S. Air Force and for the rest of their military. It had a fighting capability, it had a cargo capability, it had a command and control capability, and they closed that airport first and left the, the resources trying to run out of Kabul. If you look at Kabul, even if you just look on like Google Maps and look at the imageries there, you can see it's in the middle of a city. It's a lot like Toronto's Pearson Airport and that it's surrounded on all sides by dense population. It is the absolute worst nightmare of a place to try and run any kind of uh, opposed operations because anybody can close the airfield, anybody can control the approaches to the airfield. Bagram, at least, was in a semi-rural area. Okay, it still had built-up area around it, but nothing like Kabul. So 
Who in the military in the United States chose to close Bagram before they chose to close Kabul needs to be, you know, pulled out and slapped around violently in public and try and explain what they really thought they were doing. But my suspicions are the very senior planners in the State Department, the very senior planners in the Pentagon were focused on things like diversity, inclusion and equity lectures for the troops rather than are we successfully capable of doing a withdrawal? And anybody that's done an intelligence course in the military will tell you that planning intelligence for an offensive operation is difficult. Planning intelligence for a defensive operation is harder, and doing intelligence work for a withdrawal or a retreat is amongst the hardest things going. So they knew they were leaving. They knew they were going to cut and run. It should have been a controlled retreat. It's possible. It can be done. The U.S. military has the assets and resources, but they weren't willing to put the people in there, take the risk to do it. So there you go. Just, just by way of explanation for the viewing audience, about three weeks before this all fell apart, the U.S. Congress released a report, and they'd started a question about two years ago about the effectiveness of the U.S. Navy, because the U.S. Navy had a couple of collisions at sea. They had a, a destroyer or frigate run into a cargo vessel. They had another vessel catch on fire, and it took two days to put the fire out. So a bunch of Congress people asked a question. They said, what the heck is going on inside the U.S. Navy? Is there something going on that we're losing our ship handling skills and losing our ability to fight the ship in order to use the ship as a fighting instrument? The report just came out, I think it was in late July or early August, and what it said was the con congressional investigation determined that all of the lectures that on diversity, inclusion, and equity were up to date. Every unit in the U.S. Navy was completely up to speed on equity, on uh, gay pride, on diversity, on inclusion, and all this stuff right down to the lowest unit on the lowest ship. Everybody's training was up to date. And they said, ship handling skills and fighting the ship skills, on the other hand, have actually gone down, and that the commanders running the ships and running the squadrons and running the fleets aren't putting a focus on actual ship handling skills and fighting skills, because it's more important to have your diversity lectures up to date than it is to have your firefighting skills up to date. So that kind of moral rot, and that's about what it can be called, has been going through the US military since Obama was in power, it was kind of a little bit pushed back under Trump, but even Trump never really took a hard run at that kind of rot. But that kind of rot has gone right through the U.S. military for the last, it's hard to say, 10 or 12 years. But it's now apparent that a number of major accidents which are occurring in the U.S. military are because there is an over-focus on things like determining if there is white rage in your unit rather than looking at your unit and saying, could this thing win a war if it had to? Uh, just such a quagmire. But Tom... Thank you so much for coming on the show and making sense out of the madness. Really appreciate this. Cheers. Thanks, Mark. Intelligence expert, Tom Quiggin. He's also an author, published author as well. Uh, we're going to take a brief time out, commercial break with more uh, on News Talk Saga 960 and the Mark Retroni Show after this. Stream us live at saga960am.ca.
You were listening to the Mark Petroni Radio Program. Heard exclusively on News Talk Saga 960. And we are back with more on News Talk Saga 960. So very glad you could join us on this edition of Petroni Sarat or Sarat Petroni. I think Sarat Petroni sounds a little bit better, Richard. Let's I alternate. Think- <laughs> let's be let's be equitable, Mark. Now let's be equitable. We need we'll some alternate. diversity in this program. Uh, I tell you, I don't see how you can look at the events of the last uh, 24 hours and not shake your head at the unmitigated disaster unfolding in Afghanistan. Just when you think it's gotten as bad as it can, ISIS um, is then involved in a series of suicide bombings. Uh, A dozen uh, soldiers, U.S. soldiers, killed a total of 72 people, and the death toll continues to climb. Uh, It's just absolutely tragic. I mean, you can't get away from the sense of outrage around just how badly this thing was planned, executed. And now, of course, we're seeing the aftermath of the absolute chaos as ISIS, the Taliban, you've got the Chinese in there, you've got people desperate to get out of that country. And all of this is unfolding before our eyes. Uh, It's just astonishing. And of course, the prime minister on the campaign trail, who refuses to accept any responsibility for any of it. Well, let's be fair, Mark. I think you're being a little harsh here on on um, <laughs> our, our prime minister, gropey blackface. Uh, <laughs> they only had six months to prepare for this eventuality. Uh, six months ago, give or take, Grampy uh, Beijing Biden announced the final troop uh, withdrawal from Afghanistan. So we only had five or six months uh, to prepare uh, for safe passage for citizens and our allies and uh, uh, Afghan uh, translators and so forth. So, you know, six months is not a lot of time uh, for, for, uh, for them to, to pull something like this off. And, um, you know, let's, let's be clear. The prime minister did offer his condolences to uh, the, the people that were uh, injured and killed and his thoughts and prayers are with them and uh, his assurance that he will, you know, continue to do his level best uh, to uh, to bring Afghan refugees uh, back to Canada. Um, the only thing I found missing in his message was no mention of the uh, the Canadian citizens that are left behind that he basically abandoned. Uh, so you know, there's that. Yeah, there's that, and there's of <laughs> course all the people, the interpreters, the people who'd work with journalists over here. I was speaking with uh, Joe Warmington as well, and I mean his. He's just at his wit's end, trying to help people on the other side. Uh, and you can sense the desperation, obviously so, as these people know that their names are known to the Taliban. And uh, as a result, they and their families are in huge trouble. So they're told to go certain places. Then all of a sudden, those places are subject to bombing and violence. Uh, you know, you, you hear stories and you see vi- videos of these people, uh, you know, in sewage canals with the papers in their hands and your heart breaks for these people. And yet you can't help but sense the sense of outrage and helplessness that this was allowed to happen. And uh, the fact that many of these people are desperate for help and many of the members of parliament that might be in a position to do so, well, you know what, Richard, they've got better things to do, namely try to get reelected. So all these people are in the midst of an election campaign or a re-election campaign, such as the case may be, and the desperation just continues to pile up, and it's hard to know what to do. 
Well, they've told them what to do. Basically, it's uh, you're on your own. They said, you know, shelter in place and take whatever uh, actions are necessary to uh, ensure your safety. First, it was, uh, you know, put a red target on your back and show up at the airport. Uh, and then there was nobody there to help them. So now it's, well, just stay where you are and good luck to you. Yeah, well, good luck to them indeed. I've got to ask you about another story that's been going on. Ryerson University now deciding to uh, to change uh, their name uh, amid reckoning around indigenous schools and so forth. Uh, you know, we saw what happened with Dundas Street, for those who don't live in the Toronto area. I mean, this Dundas Street is an institution in this in this city, in the GTA. There was all sorts of pressure placed on Mayor John Tory by basically the rich crowd, the Rosedale crowd. Um, and these people basically said, no, we have to change that name. And guess who has to bear the brunt of that name change? The taxpayers of Toronto. And so it's going to cost six, seven million dollars, possibly more to change the name of a street. I mean, who really in their, in their minds knows much about Dundas Street? And yet uh, we're doing is this wokeism run amok? Well, this is North America's most ridiculous mayor in 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 action. First of all, I mean, if he would if he bothered to read a book, uh, he would understand that Lord Dundas, along with Ryerson, are two of the good guys. They were the progressives of their age. Lord Dundas stood in the uh, the the, the uh, House of Parliament. In, in the United Kingdom and presented on behalf of Wilbert Wilberforce, one of the, the primary figures in the abolitionist movement uh, for the end of slavery. That was Dundas that did that. Dundas was opposed to slavery. He, he realized though that, um, that, that uh, trying to, to abolish slavery all in one fell swoop wasn't gonna get done. It wasn't, it wasn't going to be passed by the House of Lords. And so he attempted to do it in a little more incremental way. And so that seems to be what the uh, the radical uh, woke left is taking umbrage with, that he didn't do it fast enough. Well, eventually they got it done. And uh, Lord Dundas was a major contributor to that. Uh, and, and so for that, he's being banished and canceled. I don't understand it. Um, now, what about Chief Joseph Brandt? I come from Brantford, Ontario. And of course, it's named after the place where Chief Joseph Brandt forded the Grand River, hence Brantford. Are we now then, and he owned slaves. He brought slaves with him when he came up to, uh, to Canada. Uh, he was rewarded for his service to the British during the War of Independence and was given property on either side of the Grand River. And, uh, but he brought slaves with him, um, African slaves. Now, are we to then uh, you know, banish Chief Joseph Brandt? Do we have to rename Brantford, uh, Brandt County? Uh, I mean, at, at what point does this silliness end? Um, I mean, it, it just it just aggravates me to no end that these people don't even bother, you know, to look up uh, in a history book and, and figure out what they're doing is just completely ridiculous. Yeah, and it's going to continue until we put a stop to it somehow, just tell we don't want to hear it anymore. Another issue that uh, has cropped up over the course of the campaign, and this could be good news for the Conservatives, is a plan by the Liberal Party uh, basically to tax uh, the principal residence when that residence is sold. 
Now, this is something that's been kicking around for years. Uh, they've been denying it. There was this tweet by Brian Lilly earlier today. They've been denying for the past few years that they'd tax the sale of your home. Now it's in the liberal platform. They won't give a tax rate, and they're asking you to trust them. And it's only for some people, not for everyone. I don't know. I think this could be a boon for the conservatives who will point at the liberals and say, those guys are coming after your money. Okay. They've, uh, they bankrupted the country. We're facing what a three, you know, $350 billion deficit. Uh, our debt is, is going through the roof. $1.2 trillion. So they're just scrambling around for money and they see all that great juicy equity in people's homes and they want a piece of it. I mean, to me, this needs to be front and center in the, in the election campaign. And I just hope that the mainstream media covers it. Well, you're right. This was, I think, floated around in 2019. Uh, there were rumors that they were going to tax basically capital gains on your principal residence. And of course, the liberals denied, 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 deny. And then, as Brian Lilly points out, it surfaced that it was the liberal Ontario caucus that had proposed this. And it did. It was considered for their their platform. At that point, I think they were talking about if you if you they were they were trying to uh, reduce s- speculation. And so if someone tried to buy a property, renovate it, flip it within a period of time, they would be taxed at a certain rate. If someone held on to that property for, say, two or three years, they would be taxed at a different rate. Uh, if someone held on to that property, let's say, for five years, they would be taxed uh, at, a, at a different rate. We don't have any details on this proposal. But let's say, for example, you're not flipping the house, you're not speculating, you buy the house, and then all of a sudden you get transferred uh, across country within you know six months of buying the property. I mean, I know people that that's happened to. They buy a house, six months later, they have to sell it and move on. Are they going to tax that person at 50% or whatever the amount is? Uh, it's It sounds on the surface like this should be like the nail in the coffin of these, uh, this inept clown show called the liberals. But I don't know, something tells me that, um, you know, they've done their, ins- their, uh, their, their polling and maybe they have cobbled together a, uh, a sufficient uh, constituency that they think they can get away with this. That's what disturbs me. What do they know that we don't know? Well, uh, if they've seen the latest polls, that might give them reason to reconsider that uh, strategy, Richard, because... Uh, polling companies like Ecos and Nanos now have uh, both the Tories and Liberals running neck and neck. In fact, Ecos actually has the Tories ahead by three points. Uh, they're in the 33% range. There are some polls that actually have the Liberals slipping under 30%, which tends to uh, have the uh, the mainstream media, the liberal-friendly media scrambling and uh, you know getting into slightly panicky mode because they're seeing momentum sort of you know drain out of the liberal campaign they've run a crappy campaign up to this point slip ups you know like one of their cabinet ministers of course referring to the taliban as as their brothers even as we see this horrific violence take place uh, in that country so these types of slip ups are tending to derail the liberal message we've seen a series of uh, hecklers come out of the woodwork we've seen uh, protests uh, against this prime minister. So there's the sense that this isn't going Trudeau's way, at least at the half halfway point, as we approach the halfway point of the campaign, we're still a little way off. I mean, that makes the TV debates all the more important. But at this point, it appears, surprise, surprise, that the conservatives 
have a little bit of momentum going their way. How do you see this campaign shaping up so far? Well, I would agree. I think uh, I'm not a huge fan of um, of Aaron O'Toole, but I think they have, for the most part, run almost a flawless campaign. It's two weeks in, as you say. There's uh, it's an eternity. Another two weeks. That's an eternity, given the uh, uh, the dizzying speed of our news cycles these days. Uh, you know, something could happen in another hour that could you know totally turn things around. But at this point, it does look like. Uh, if if everything remains the same, the conservatives could at least, you know, put it this way. It looks like the liberal majority now is is looking less and less likely. We could still see perhaps a liberal minority, which would give them still a working majority. As long as you have these complicit partners in the with the separatists, the bloc and the uh, the radical socialists, the NDP in tow, mm-hmm. um, you know, we could still see effectively another uh, two, three, four years of this madness under a a new liberal mandate. I have to ask you, before we wrap things up, this sad remnant of a a president south of the border, Biden now, open to deploying more forces inside Afghanistan. So he's talking tough all of a sudden, Richard, saying, we will hunt you down. He knows that Americans are extremely upset by the situation, that they blame Biden for what happened, and rightfully so. I think he bears a huge chunk of the blame. Now he's talking about staying in Afghanistan, sending more forces in there. This is absolute madness. Seven months in, and he's practically brought that country to its knees. I can't imagine uh, how the United States would continue to exist or function until at least the midterms, because I think at that point, we're going to see a, a red wave. They'll take over the House, maybe even the Senate. Um, you know, it, I think there's a 25th Amendment out there floating around for uh, for Grampy Beijing Joe Biden. The problem is uh, he would be replaced by Kamala Harris, who uh, arguably would be even worse. Uh, the polling on her is an absolute disaster. She's um, around a 30, a 37 percent approval rating. In other words, uh, nearly two thirds of Americans, and we're talking Democrats as well, think that she is, um, you know, unsuitable to be president. So uh, somehow the United States is going to, the, the people there are going to have to to, to uh, ride this out at least for, you know, another year and a bit, maybe until 2024. I hope they can survive it. Indeed. The 25th Amendment, of course, is when you have a president who's unfit and then they're the ones who decide that's what they use in order to. In fact, they were talking about doing it to Trump at one point. Yeah. Who would have so thought I, Trump gets yeah. gets impeached uh, for a phone call with the uh, the president of Ukraine. Yeah. And uh, and yet uh, Biden is still in office after, uh, you know, one incredible uh, failure after another on the border with the uh, the energy port, with the energy file, with uh, foreign policy. It's just been one complete abject failure after another, and yet President 45 impeached over a phone call? I've never seen such a train wreck, and I've been watching this, and I know you have for many, many years. I don't think I've ever seen a government uh, implode the way it has south of the border, and yet the media, of course, on one hand trying to prop them up, and yet you have more and more reporters saying, hey, our credibility is on the line here. We have to go after this guy, even though we don't really want to. Turn, too late to turn back now. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's what the song goes. My friend, thank you so much. Great to see you once you again. And I'm really enjoying these. I can't tell you how much fun it is. Likewise. Check out uh, Richard Serrett's show from 4 p.m. Eastern to 6 p.m. Eastern, Mondays through Fridays. Hey, that's it for me. Hope you've enjoyed the show. 
It's certainly been a, a huge blast for me bringing it to you all week long. Have a great weekend. Let's do it again next week, shall we? Bye-bye for now. No radio? No problem. Stream us live on saga960am.ca.